And we're actually starting a series this morning in the book of First Corinthians. Um, you probably saw on your chair when you walked in one of these uh, little scripture journals. That is our free gift to you. Please feel free to take that. Uh, and we only ask that you would bring it back with you uh, each week. Um, if you're involved in one of our gospel communities, uh, we would highly encourage you uh, to keep this on you and bring it with you to group so that you can jot down notes. I think one of the great things about these is that when you've got the Word of God there and then you can take notes, you can kind of put action items or things that the Lord is pressing upon you so that when you go home and you're spending time reading the Bible by yourself, uh, you might be able to journal out uh, questions you might have, things to be praying for, things to be uh, thinking through as um, you are reading God's Word and as we are studying it together. And that just kind of brings me to something I just want to point out really, really quickly. If this is your first time with us, one of the things that I try to consistently remind our church of is that we love God's word here and we, we love it unashamedly so. We believe it is how God speaks to us. We believe it's his uh, revelation to us. And even though the pages of this book were written over thousands of years by uh, at, at least probably a couple dozen different authors, we believe that God used those men and spoke through them and that his word is alive and active today. It's living. It is written in such a way that it might uh, cut us to the quick, that it might convict us of sin, and it might reveal Jesus to us. And so we study entire books of the Bible together as a church, both here on a Sunday morning, but also in our groups that scatter and gather throughout the week because we want to know God's word well. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for at least half a year. So buckle up. It's going to be a while. We're going to get to know this letter really, really well. We're going to get to know what was going on in Corinth. We're going to try to unpack and understand why Paul was writing this letter in the first place. And so a little background knowledge that might be helpful as we approach the text this morning is just to know a little bit about this church and the city that it was located in. Corinth was a pretty large city uh, in southern Greece that had been rebuilt probably roughly about 200 years before Paul planted a church there. Um, it had been a major uh, trade city uh, prior to Roman occupation, but then and sometime after the Hellenistic period, after Alexander the Great, the Romans moved into uh, Greece and they completely destroyed the city. And then Julius Caesar in about 150 BC rebuilt the city to be a provincial capital in southern Greece and to be a hub for trade with the eastern world. And so this is a big city. There were a lot of temples there. Uh, there roughly 90,000 people or more lived there. And during this time period, um, there was a lot of different cultures and people groups present in this city. And so it was incredibly diverse, it was multicultural, and there was a lot going on uh, during this time. And if you want to, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to Acts chapter 18. I want to set the stage for us this morning by reading Paul's first interaction with the Corinthians when he moved into the city and planted this church. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 18, look at the text with me. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, if you don't know anything about the Apostle Paul, this was his church planning strategy. He would move into a new city. He would go straight to the synagogue because he was Jewish by birth and by cultural and religious heritage. And then he would spend time towards the end of their service time together on the Sabbath day, preaching the gospel to them and trying to reason with them and persuade them from the scriptures why Jesus was the Messiah, the promised Christ that the people of Israel had been longing for and looking for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so he would preach to them, he would reason with them for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then eventually they would get tired of him, and they would say, you're not allowed to come back to the synagogue anymore. 
And so then he would leave the synagogue, and then he would begin preaching the gospel to the people of that city, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of the city. And so as you can see, right, first thing he does is he moves into Corinth, right? He goes to the synagogue, he begins to preach the gospel, and then look what happens. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man by the name of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So, Paul went to Corinth, kind of followed his typical ministry strategy of what he had done every city that he went into, but he was given kind of a different vision and mission from the Lord this go-around, which is was he was to stay in this city for an extended period of time. And so he was in Corinth for about 18 months from arrival to when he would eventually leave and return to Antioch later on in chapter 18. And I share that with us because what we need to understand that as Paul is writing to this letter to the church at Corinth that we're reading this morning, he deeply cares about the people of this church. He loves them. He spent a year and a half with them, which you know anything about Paul is much longer than what he spent in most places where he church planted. And he's familiar with many of the people that are a part of this church on a personal level. And so what we're going to see as we read the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul is going to be very abrupt with them all throughout the letter. And if we read this letter with an incorrect lens, we're going to think Paul basically wrote this letter just to yell at them. He's going to list out all of their problems. He's just going to move from one problem to the next. And guys, let me tell you something. There was a lot wrong with this church. It was a hot mess. And what we need to understand, though, is that as we read this letter, Paul is not writing this letter as an angry dad screaming at his kids to get their act together. No, he's writing it as a loving spiritual father whose heart breaks for these people that he saw God do miraculous things in. And as they are turning and walking away from the freedom that has been given to them in Christ, his heart breaks for them. And so this letter is an invitation for them to return to the love that God uh, had bestowed upon them so they might live in the freedom that has been given uh, to them in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be dealing with a lot of issues, but the, what, maybe something that distinguishes the uh, letter to the Corinthians from maybe a lot of Paul's other epistles is that when you look at his other letters, he tends to deal with highly theological issues in many of his letters. He tends to spend time really breaking things down and unpacking them over the course of time. But when you look at this letter to the church at Corinth, you, you're going to notice that, the, that most of the other letters is Paul trying to encourage the church how to withstand the spiritual, uh, theological, and physical attacks coming at them from outside of the church. That, that in Romans, he's teaching them how to defend the faith. In the, the letter to the churches of Galatia, he's writing on how to defend the faith from the Judaizers and how they're trying to rob them of their joy in Christ. When you read this letter to the Corinthians, their problems are internal. They are attacking one another and ripping the church apart from the inside instead of the culture and the city around them attacking them for their witness for Christ. And so what we see then is that they struggled with assimilating to the culture around them, which led them to pride, division, and tribalism. And in that pride and in that division and in that tribalism, right, is, is where Paul is going to start really addressing their issues 
because he views that at its core, a divided church right, is, is a gospel issue. That, it's a, that at its core, it's an issue with how we are identified as followers of Jesus. Because Jesus died for the church, the body of Christ. And to create disunity, and what I might put it this way, to create unnecessary disunity is to bring shame upon the name of our Lord and Savior. And so we're going to see all about these divisions later. I'll even speak to a few of them in a few minutes. But I just want to pause for a minute and say, it's easy to read the Bible and then forget its application. It's easy to read all of these issues that are going to be going on in the church at Corinth and say, man, they were messed up. And we're like the guy standing on the corner crying out to God, that God, thank you, I'm not like that church. Thank you that I'm not a sinner like them. But as I examine the church at large, maybe more specifically in our own country, I sadly see a large number of similarities to the church at Corinth. And I think God in his mercy to us has preserved his word so that we might be drawn back to our first love, which is Jesus. And in that, we might love one another and fight for one another. I mean, think about it. Let's think about all the things we, we see around us every day, both inside the church and outside of it. And we see fights over theology, how to do worship, how involved we should be with the culture. What is our role as Christians in politics? Should we wear a mask or not wear a mask? Should we get a vaccine or not get a vaccine? Right? All these different things plague us into a more and more polarized discussion. And this letter to the church at Corinth is Paul's way of addressing how the church can tackle issues of disunity and polarization and tribalism. And so I'm going to present a main idea to you, if you can throw that on the board for me. This, as we study um, the text over the course of the next several weeks, right, here's what we're going to see. Right? Throughout the entire epistle to, to the church at Corinth, there's going to kind of be this big idea, and it's this. Because God has been faithful to us in Jesus Christ, we can live faithfully with one another for his glory or for him. Let me say that again. Because God was faithful to me, because God was faithful to you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, because he was faithful to you in Christ and promises that he will continue to be faithful to you, you can live faithfully with those around you to the glory of God. That is the big idea in this letter to the Corinthians. Not just that we should do it, but we can do it. This isn't going to be one of those like, oh, like we should be like, a, yes, that is certainly going to be an aspect of studying this letter together. But more, more than that, this letter is going to be filled with hope, right? Because of Jesus, because of the promise of the Holy Spirit, because he resides and is alive in us, we are able to live to the glory of God in unity with one another as a family when it would be impossible otherwise. So let's dive into the text this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a fairly typical greeting in New Testament letters. You know, whether it's Paul or Peter or James, this is a fairly typical greeting that uh, you would see in ancient historical writing. And what you, the way they kind of like work that out, right, is the author introduces himself and states the, the, the reason why he is writing this letter. He gives them a, a, a greeting. And then what you'll notice in verse 2 
is that Paul is going to address his audience, the Corinthian church, with some truths about who they are. But if you know the letter well enough, you'll know that he's also going to be unveiling their issues before them. But look at what he says in verse 2. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, at face value, right, you would read that and you think, okay, this is pretty innocent. It's just him kind of addressing who he's talking to. But here's what he's kind of laying down as a groundwork and a premise to the church at Corinth. He's saying this. First, right, church at Corinth, I'm writing you, and the ones I'm specifically writing to inside of the church are those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, right? Here's what he's saying. I'm writing to all those whose lives have been changed and will continue to be changed by Jesus. Right, he's saying to them, hey, becoming a follower of Jesus is not just a one-time decision where you went from not knowing who God is to who God is, but it is a one-time decision that then leads to a lifetime of following Jesus as his disciple. That it leads to a changed life over the course of time. And one of the things I have reminded uh, this church of over the years that if you don't want to be different, if you don't want your life to be different, if you don't want to change, don't become a follower of Jesus. Don't do it. It will happen. I'm living proof. If you begin to follow Jesus earnestly and honestly, you will change. Because what the Holy Spirit does is it resides inside of you and it starts changing your desires. And with those changed desires, sin and things that you loved and ran to in the past will no longer seem appealing to you in the future. There are dozens of people in this church that that is their testimony. Oh, yeah, like I came to Jesus and then I don't know what happened. Like I just started hating the things that I used to love. Yes, that's the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. I can't, and you know, like, this is one of those weird gray areas for Christians that when we're trying to defend the faith and we learn our apologetics and we do these things, right? This is one of those gray areas that no amount of philosophy or science or anything that men can make up in their own wisdom can address. I lived one way. I loved the way I lived. A week later, I met Jesus and I didn't want to do those things anymore. By the way, had been trying to stop doing those things literally for years beforehand. Explain that one to me, psychologists. Right? It is the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so as Paul addresses them in this way, he's kind of saying to them, hey, I'm just letting you know, changed lives should be something we see in you. And I've been hearing reports that that's not the case. And then he goes on to say this. Not only are, should they be experiencing changed lives, but they're called to be saints together with all of those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, hey, church, I'm writing you, and there's two things that should be true of you. Your lives are being changed by Jesus in unity with the body of Christ. And as we read this letter, guess what two things are not true of the church at Corinth? Changing lives and unity in the body of Christ. And these are themes that will be tackled in various ways throughout this letter as we study it together. But, but as we look at verse 4 through verse 9, that's kind of like the next section we're going to roll into. We're going to notice Paul do something here with them before he starts tackling their issues head on. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Now, it's easy to forget, especially considering Corinth's problems, that Paul deeply loved the people in this church. He cared for them. This wasn't just him writing a letter. You know, it wasn't as if Paul was this denominational or network leader and had a rogue church going crazy in his denomination that he'd never been a part of. And he gets this letter saying, hey, like, I, I, I need you as the leader to address these guys because there's all sorts of issues going on in Corinth. And these are, this was a church he planted and people he loved dearly. And he knew they had issues, but he didn't lose sight of what he had seen God do in their lives. It would be, it's easy for us to write people off when they're not doing what we want them to do. And Paul has shown a propensity over the course of his life, if we study the book of Acts, to not be super patient with people. And so this is one of these moments where I read these verses and I say, okay, Paul realizes that although this church is struggling to follow Jesus, the way to approach them in this failure and in this lack of love for the Lord and his people is to approach them in love to remind them of the beauty of what he had seen God do in their lives. And he's going to lovingly challenge them. He's going to lovingly challenge their thinking. And he's going to lovingly challenge their behavior moving forward. And he's going to use a literary device that he uses frequently throughout all of his letters. Right? So if you've been around for a while and you were here when we studied Romans or Galatians together, you probably heard me mention this. But Paul frequently uses this literary device uh, where he, he contrasts what we call the indicative with the imperative. He, and, and what I mean by that right, is he uses an indicative, which is something that is true. So he will make a statement that is true of his audience in the letter, and then he will follow that up with the imperative command, saying, because of what is true of you, live this way. So like, for example, how many of you guys went to the game last night? Okay, about half the room. Because you are a Gator fan, you cheered for the Gators last night, yes? That's, I heard some no's. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what you were doing at the game then, right? Because you are a fan of the Florida Gators, you cheer for them, right? Indicative, you are a Gator fan, and because of that, you cheer for them. Right For me, because I'm an alumnus of WVU, I cheer for them, even though they're terrible. Lost again, four turnovers yesterday. I'm not bitter about it at all. Paul frequently does this throughout his letters, though. He shares an indicative uh, truth about who they are in light of what God has done for them. And then he says, because this is true of you, live this way. Now, guys, if we understand this, if we, if we will walk into this understanding that Paul has as, as a follower of Jesus, and we allow this to be true of us and how we think about God and think about ourselves as followers of God, guys, I promise you this, it will radically transform your walk with Jesus. If you approach God from your place of who you are in Him and live from that place, you will experience far more joy and freedom. But what most of us do is we see the imperative commands and we turn it. And we say, I must live that way to earn God's favor. Right? To use our silly Florida Gators example again, I must cheer loudly at the game to be a Florida Gator. No. If you are a Gator, whether you cheered at that game last night, what is true of you? You're a gator. And what we see in Scripture time and time again is that God shares with us what is true of us, and then we respond to that. Let me share maybe how this practically plays out even in, in our home. Right, for those of you guys that are parents, you're going to immediately relate with me and understand this one. Disciplining kids is hard. Believe it or not, they don't want to be told what to do. And sometimes, right, some of you guys that are kids, you're like, my parents love disciplining me. I promise you they did not. It's difficult. It's actually easier not to discipline, right? But one of the ways we try to discipline our kids in our house is to try to lay some foundational groundwork for them so that they'll understand this concept. 
So like when my kids disobey, right, and we're correcting them and we're disciplining them, here's what we say to them. You know, I'll say, Gideon, Josiah, right, you are my son. And because you are my son, I love you. You can't do anything to change that. You are a part of this family. There's nothing you can do to not be a part of this family. If we took a DNA test, the results would be in. I am the father. Jackie's like, she's like, why did you ever watch Maury, Kevin? What is wrong with you? Right, and here, here, and, and so as I'm communicating this to my kids, right, I want them to understand, here is what is true of you, right? You are my son. But because you are my son, there's some standards in our family, right? Because, because you are an Anderson, because you are my child, we have some standards that we live by. And if you, if you go outside those standards, we're going to correct you. We're going to bring you back in line with them. But there's nothing you can do that will cause you to lose your place in our family. And what Paul is kind of sharing here and what he does throughout his letters is remind the churches of that same truth. Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, because of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, reconciling us to God the Father, if we are in Christ, we are in the family of God. And, our, and the calls are the imperatives to respond in obedience to God's word is that we are in his family and we get to be a part of his family and his family has some standards. And we live out of our position in the family in obedience. We don't live in obedience to earn a position in the family. And guys, this is, this is a paradigm shift. This will allow you to stop viewing uh, God as the angry dad and taskmaster who's yelling at you all the time to do the right thing, but instead the loving father who cares for you, who wants what's best for you. And when you step outside of those bounds or the standards that God has set inside of the family, he's correcting you because he knows what's best for you. Like, believe it or not, I don't discipline my kids when they annoy me. I discipline them when they do things that will either bring harm to themselves or harm to others. Why? Because I love them. Because I want what's best for them. How much more so might God want for you? I mean, look at what Paul says is true of them in these verses. He says, God has given them grace, verse 4. Right? He saved them. When there was no way to be rescued, God had saved them. He says that God had gifted them with the Holy Spirit, and with that Holy Spirit had given them gifts of speech and knowledge. Right? He's reminding them, hey, your eloquent speech, your knowledge, all these gifts you have, they weren't natural abilities God gave them to you because he loves you. This is true of you. This is how you know God loves you. He says that God had been faithful for them and to them as they wait for the return of Jesus in verse 7. Sounds similar to what we just finished in Ruth. God was faithful in the Old Testament. Guess what he's doing in the New Testament? Being faithful. That's what he does. And then it says in verse 8 that Paul trusts that God has not only saved them, but will sustain them through to the end. Why? Because he's faithful and he has shown himself to be faithful and that one day they will experience glory with him. I mean, just in those five verses, Look at all the things that are true of them because of Jesus. Saved, gifted, loved, see God's faithfulness and a promise of future glory that they cannot mess up because Jesus will be faithful to them until his return. Now you're probably seeing it. Paul's setting them up. Right? He's like, look, look at all these things that are true of you. Look at all the, look at all the ways that God loves you. Look at, look at what you know about what Christ has done, and, and because of that is true about you. Therefore, if God has given you wisdom, if he's given you power, if he's given you strength, if he's saved you, and he's promised faithfulness to you, then guys, this life is all about him. It's all about Jesus. I mean, look at how many times Jesus' name is mentioned in the first nine verses alone. Eight times. It's not an accident. It's like, hey guys, Jesus, Jesus. Did you forget about Jesus? Jesus. Just, just remind you one more time, Jesus. Yeah, you're together because of Jesus. 
It's all about him. And he's calling them to remember that again and again because Jesus has saved us. Jesus has gifted us. Jesus has unified us. And one day Jesus will glorify us because he is good and because he is gracious. And because of this, we live for him and should be pursuing obedience to him for his glory and his name's sake. Which leads Paul to the first major issue he's going to address inside this letter. An appeal to unity. It's like, hey, look at all these things that are true of you because you are a part of the family of God. And because you are a part of the family of God, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. Right? Notice that, right? All these things are true of you. And because they are true of you, I appeal to you. Brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Right? Notice the language, right? He's still calling them brothers. He's still calling them family. But he's saying, you guys are fighting way too much. You're dividing. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? I think God, or sorry, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Right? Indicative, now imperative. Appeal to you that you agree that there be no divisions, that you be united. Why? Because we're brothers in God's family. We have a higher calling than the things that you are allowing to divide you. Now, I want to share with you a number of things that were dividing this church. We'll see them all throughout the, the text as we study over the course of the next 20 or so weeks. In these first four chapters, it's going to be leadership and who they choose to follow and who they view as their primary leader. Um, in verses 5 and 6, it's going to be sexual ethics. In uh, chapter 6, it's also going to be over the law and, and litigation. And I don't mean like the Old Testament law. I mean like getting involved in the law of Rome and what was going on in this city. Uh, in chapter 7, uh, they're going to be divided over marriage and how to approach that. In chapters 8 through 10, they're going to be arguing over food. That's right, food. and whether food sacrificed to idols was okay for them to be eating. In chapter 11, they're going to fight over corporate worship. Apparently someone in Corinth had brought a fog machine out. I don't know. Sorry. Forgive me, Lord. Chapters 12 through 14, they're going to be fighting over spiritual gifts. That's right. Paul has talked about how God has given them gifts, and they're going to fight over how to use them and how they're better than everyone else because of what gift they have. Can you imagine that, getting a gift at Christmas? Actually, we do this. <laughs> See what gift they got, right? Anybody ever watch The Office? Yankee Swap, right? Michael got the iPod, for, iPod Touch, and everyone else's gift was terrible. It's what we do. And then in chapter 15, they're even going to fight over the resurrection. I'm not sure why or how, but they found a way. Right? And so they're just fighting about all of this stuff. But in this instance, right here in this passage, right here in these verses we're looking at here, they're fighting over leadership. And really, in reality, they're, they're quarreling over celebrity. Right? Because notice the language here. Right? Paul, Apollo, Cephas, that's Peter. And then there's a few really, really super spiritual people that, that say they follow Jesus. But no, notice the language. Look at all of the personal pronouns used in verse 12. Right? What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, 
or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. That is very intentional. Right? He's even saying to them, hey, when you break up in these factions of loving Paul or Apollos or Cephas or saying you're a follower of Jesus, you're still making it about you. Hey, man, look how great I am. I follow Apollos. Right? Oh, look how good I am. I'm a part of this ministry. I'm at the BCM. I'm in crew. I'm a navigator. Gosh, God, you found the one ministry God is blessing in this entire city and campus. Congratulations. And I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is this. We're going to spend eternity with one another. And we're not going to be worshiping our organization or our leaders there. We're going to be worshiping the one leader who matters. And that's Jesus. And you can almost hear the disgust in Paul's voice as he responds to this. It's one of the reasons why I love the Bible so much is just the raw honesty you see here. And look at what he says. He planted this church, right? He loves these people. And then verse 14, thank goodness I didn't baptize any of you. Some of you guys are worshiping me. You're treating me as I'm some leader that's better than everyone else. Thank God that I didn't baptize any of you so that you couldn't draw me in to these arguments and this nonsense. Why? It's like I'm not a baptizer. I have one job. I'm a preacher of the gospel. I herald the message of what Jesus did for lost and lowly sinners to point them to God and what he had done for you in Christ. Right? That's the, the funny thing about all of this for Paul. Right? He looks out on them and says, you're saying you're of Paul, you're saying you're of Peter, you're saying of Apollos. All three of us are here because of Jesus. This is why, you know, in, in our day and age, right, when we fought, find ourselves under certain celebrities, right, it's just, it's such foolishness and folly. And like Paul, I try to wrap my brain about it. And I'm like, why, why do we do this? Why, why do we run to these divisions and follow these certain people when it's so antithetical to everything God says is true about us in Christ? And Paul asks three questions in verse 13 that are really rhetorical and expecting negative responses. But look what he says. Is Christ divided? You see what he's saying there? Like he's, he's giving this absurd question to them. Hey, when Jesus rose from the dead, did we cut his body up and spread it into pieces amongst the different denominations for the church? You know, in the Methodists, they got this part of Jesus. In the Baptists, they got this part of Jesus, right? And the Anglicans, they got this piece. And then the Catholics, they got this piece. And then don't forget the non-denominational folks. They over here, they got that piece. Paul's like, Jesus wasn't divided for you. Right? He was resurrected whole in a glorified body, and he rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And he is the head of the church, not a denomination, the church. Not a particular campus ministry, the church. Look at what he says next. Was Paul crucified for you? It's like, hey, did I die on the cross for you? Just want to make sure like, we've got that thing clear. It wasn't me, it was Jesus. Hey, were you baptized in my name? No, we, ne we baptized you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, God. Right? And he brings all this out so rhetorically, right? Because he loves them. Because he cares for them. And he sees them ripping one another apart over something so foolish. As the big one when I was younger and a new believer was whether you were a Calvinist or not. pretty confident John Calvin loved Jesus and was saved by Jesus. I think Martin Luther before him was, and Augustine before him was, and Paul before him was, back to Jesus. And guys, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there might not be things that we disagree on. Right? Notice that, that Paul doesn't say like, hey, 
Everything must be agreed to upon 100% of the time. But you do need to agree. Maybe it's even to disagree. And for that to be okay, because we're family, we still come together with one another. Even those that were a part of the faction that followed Jesus gets yelled at here because they were making it about them and not him. And it's easy to sit here and trash the Corinthians and say, oh my gosh, like these guys are so dumb. You know, same way if we read the Old Testament, we say the same thing about Israel. The only thing that's different about us from them guys is that we don't have our time period recorded in Scripture. Like, wouldn't you love that like 100 years from now? Kevin Anderson in Gainesville, Florida at Aletheia Church. Here's the letter from an apostle on the foolish things that you did and your followers. Because we need a Savior. Because we're broken, sinful people. And to think that in our day we don't divide over celebrity is crazy. I would argue that we're maybe doing it better now than we ever have. I could probably list six different names of Christian celebrity pastors or leaders, and you want to find at least one person in this room that would fought, fought, say, yeah, I follow that guy. Right? Matt Chandler, Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, T.D. Jakes, Tim Keller, John Piper. Right? Who is it? Right? Who's the celebrity pastor that we crush on the most? It creates divisions that spiral and spiral. Let me just say this, guys. There's, there's, like, there's this movement going on, at least in our country right now, right, where people are, are deconstructing Christianity. First of all, you're not cute. People have been deconstructing Christianity since about AD 35. I think like the, the irony is that we think, oh, because we're products of the Enlightenment and we're smarter than we've ever been, we can do things like that. Guys, Paul addresses so many of your questions. Like Romans was written to people that were deconstructing Christianity. Did you know that? But as we, as we see this going on, Right, we see people deconstructing. Whenever I talk to someone that says, like, oh, I don't think I really believe anymore. I'm, I'm kind of deconstructing my faith. You know what the common thread I see in all of them is? It's usually not some major philosophical issue or some issue with truth in Scripture. It's always tied to the failure of a person. Oh, my pastor had a moral failure. And I just thought to myself, like, if he can fail, this can't be real. Right, or we, we have these people inside of the Christian music industry and we love them and we prop up their music and then they fail. And the people start questioning, what am I going to do? Right? Or we follow a particular pastor or celebrity uh, um, theological leader, right? And they fail and what does it lead to? Destruction. Right? The reason Paul is ultimately pointing this out among them is Paul's going to fail them. Apollos is going to fail them. Peter is going to fail them. And the foundation is not built on those men, it's built on Jesus Christ. And so guys, we have to be honest with ourselves. Right? What is dividing us? Is it like the church in Corinth where it's celebrity inside of the church? Maybe it's like other things the Corinthians are dealing with, where they divide over theological issues. Guys, some of you guys are going to be shocked when I say this. This is a Southern Baptist church. Most of the time when I say that, people are like, what? Huh? All right, love the Southern Baptist Convention. Went to the Southern Baptist Seminary. Love it. Thankful for it. Thankful to be partnered with them. Right? One of the things that distinguishes Southern Baptists is that we believe in a particular mode of baptism and when that happens. Right? But if you notice in our membership statement and our membership covenant, the elders of this church have decided that if you can defend biblically while you hold to another form of baptism, we will still allow you to become a member of this church. Because I will not divide the body of Christ over a theological issue. By the way, you better be able to explain it. Oh, mom made me get baptized. That's not your theological argument for me. What is dividing us? Has a big one today. Worldly issues and problems.
How many churches are splitting because their ultimate allegiance lies to whether a Democrat or a Republican? Whether they want to wear a mask or not wear a mask. Whether they want to get the vaccine or not get a vaccine. And notice how quiet it got in here when I started mentioning that. Guys, I love you. You wonder why the church is, in my opinion, really struggling right now and so ineffective? Because they look at us and they see us fighting with one another and everyone else over things that don't matter and they say, well, that fight, that's no different than anything else I see. Why would I want to be a part of that? There's no hope. Screaming at people over masks, screaming at people over who they vote for. All the time bringing shame upon the name of the one who died in our place. Because I'm not, I'm not saying this to shame you. I love to argue. I do. Some of you guys know I've argued with you before. I love it. It's fun. My wife's like, no, it's not. Why are you the way that you are? But I'm called because of what Christ has done for me to lay that down. To surrender that at the feet of Jesus. Because he's better. Right, Paul appeals to the Corinthian church, right? This is what he's ultimately doing. He's appealing to them. Church, brothers, sisters, there's a better way. There's a better way than the way that you're doing this. And that's the way of Jesus. And I love what he says. This is not a, a one-time theme for him, right? If you go over to Philippians chapter 2, look at what he says. He's going to start off, he's going to do it a little bit different. He's going to do the imperative first this time, but then he's going to provide the indicative. And look at what he says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So see what he's saying there? He's saying, hey, church at Philippi, Christ calls us to unity with one another. He calls us to treat others as more important than ourselves. He calls us to not look after our own interests primarily, but the interests of others. Some of you guys are like, that's hard. How do I do that? Makes it really clear. If you are focused on serving other people all the time, guess what it's hard to do? Fight and hate them. It's really hard. Like if you, if you resolve before the Lord, say, Jesus, I want to live in light of you and your word. I want to be obedient to you. I want to live out Philippians 2, 1 through 4 and love others and serve them. How do I do, how do, I do that? You treat them as more important than yourself. You consider their interests above your own. And if you live that out, it's really hard to hate people. Do you know that like there are times in my own home where I need to serve my kids and I'm like, ah! And then I say, Lord, you've called me to serve them and love them. And guess what? It's really hard to be irritated with them after that. And trust me, they try. It's really, really hard to hate people if you've made a commitment to serve them and love them like Christ did. Well, why? Why is that so important? Glad you asked. Paul answers that in verses 5 through 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in who? Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I see what Paul's saying there? Why do we serve others? Why do we love others? Why do we lay down our preferences? Why do we lay down our arguments over all the different things that might divide us? 
because Jesus did it first. He's equal with the Father. He emptied himself. He submitted to death in our place in order to save us. And why is he exalted? Not because of his power, not because of his rightness, not because of uh, his standing with the Father. No, he is exalted, according to Paul, because he humbled himself to save us. He served us. Jesus served us. Church family, this is what is at stake. Because Jesus is our example, and his example is love, service, grace, and unity. We, as his followers, are called to do the same. Paul cares so deeply here about this issue, not because of the fighting and divisions that were occurring in this church that he had planted and loved, but because it brings shame upon the name of Jesus. Think about what what Jesus said in John chapter 13. I mean, think about this. This is the words of Jesus himself talking to his disciples. And look at what he says. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. See what he's saying there? Hey, do you want someone to know whether you're a Christian or not without having shared the gospel or carrying your cool Christian t-shirt or having your Christian bumper sticker or listening to Joy FM or whatever it is you might do to let your neighbor know that you're a Christian? You want them to know? Have love for one another. That's the way. When we argue and divide over issues, the world looks at us and sees no difference between us and them and says, why should I follow your Jesus? What does he have to offer? So how can we respond? Because here's the deal. There's actually a ton of hope here. If you're feeling convicted this morning, praise God. Conviction is the Holy Spirit and the work of God trying to tell you, I'm not done with you. I'm calling you to a better way, my way. And so here's how I'm going to encourage you to respond. This is something that I've been putting into practice recently. I stole it from the American Puritan, Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote over 70 resolutions for his life. And I want to share the first three with you this morning. Here they are. Number one, I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure for as long as I live. And I will do these things without any consideration of the time they take. I'm resolved to do whatever I understand to be my duty and will provide the most good and benefit to mankind in general. And I'm resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I encounter and no matter how many I experience or how severe they may be. So he's like, hey, I'm going to resolve to love God and do whatever God wants me to do. I'm going to pursue it with reckless abandon and I'm going to do it no matter how hard it is. Guys, which might mean putting on a mask. It might mean not arguing with that person on Facebook. He says in resolution two, I will continually endeavor to find new ways to practice and promote the things from resolution one. I'm going to keep growing. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep loving Jesus. I'm going to keep making much of him. And look at number three. If ever, and I love this, really whenever, I fail and fall or grow weary and dull, Whenever I begin to neglect the keeping of any part of these resolutions, I will repent of everything I can remember that I have violated or neglected as soon as I come to my senses again. You see that? He's like, I'm going to live for Jesus. And when I fail to live for Jesus, I'm going to repent. I'm going to trust in Jesus for my forgiveness. And I'm going to resolve to live for Jesus again. That's it. Guys, that's the Christian life. I'm going to love and obey God, and I'm going to honor him. And when I fail to do so, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to love and obey and honor God each and every day of my life. So here's how I want to encourage us this morning. We're going to take communion here in just a moment. We take communion at Aletheia Church every week, and here's why we do that. We want us, as an act of worship, to celebrate the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ poured out on our behalf so that we might be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to the Father. 
so that when we take communion, right, it's not an act of penance, it's not an act of sorrow, it's not an act of shame, it's an act of worship, right? By taking the juice and the bread, what we're saying is, God, I have identified with Christ, and as I partake in this, I am celebrating that I am free and loved and forgiven because of Jesus, Not because of anything I've done, not because of any acts, but because of the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And then, church, I want to encourage you to do this. As you take communion, would you do this? Would you resolve moving forward to live in more unity with one another to the glory of God? I'm going to give you a few questions to consider, and if we could leave those up for a while while we're taking communion and as we start worship and then move over to uh, the worship music, that would be great. But these are the questions I want you guys to consider this morning. If you're taking notes, this is a good time to write some of these things down because it'd be good to remember them throughout the week. Is there anything in my life that is causing unnecessary disunity with other Christians? Just asking you to identify. Do a little bit of recon. What's going on? Does God want me to continue to fight for this cause or issue at the expense of unity in the body of Christ? Fair question, right? If I am contributing to this unity, confess and repent. God, you've asked me to follow a better way, and I'm choosing not to, but I confess that your way is right. Forgive me for creating this unity in your family, and help me not to moving forward. I'm wrong, forgive me, change me. And then by faith, take hold of the promises of God, those same promises that Paul gave to the church in Corinth. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Guys, here's the good news. As we talk about disunity and the disruption and how we may be mimicking the church at Corinth and how that brings shame upon the gospel, Jesus died for that. He died for it. He died for our rebellious disunity inside the church, the body of Christ. And he invites us to repent and then take hold of, by faith, the promises that we are forgiven in him and that he has empowered us through his Holy Spirit to live in freedom, saved, forgiven, sanctified, loved, and glorified. We take hold of that by faith. And church, if we do this, we will see the world turned upside down for Jesus. We'll see our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, and people all over the world. They're going to start asking questions. Why are you doing that? And Jesus is better. Jesus is better than that thing you're arguing about over there. I'm not interested in it. Well, don't you have an opinion? Yeah, I do, but it doesn't matter. Jesus is better. Want to talk about Jesus? I like him. He's the best. Right? That is why we were here. And so church, let's resolve to pursue unity, not for unity's sake, but for the glory of God so that we might make much of him. Let's pray. God, I love you and I love your word. And God, I am thankful that when I read your word and I study it and I look at it and I see myself and I say, that's me. I am a creator of disunity in the body of Christ. God, that is me. That is who you are talking to. You remind me that as I wait for the revealing of my Lord Jesus Christ, you will sustain me to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, you remind me that you are faithful to me who was called into fellowship with your Son, Jesus Christ, my Lord. God, I pray if anyone in this room this morning does not know that, that you will save them right now. Reveal yourself to them. Show them the magnitude of what you have done for them in Jesus. And then God, I pray for us as your church, starting with myself.
you might show us what causes and issues that we are attaching ourselves to at the expense of unity in the body of Christ. Holy Spirit, will you convict us of that sin and grant us repentance? And then will you help us to take hold of the promises of what you've done for us by faith so that we might see a greater worship of you? And I ask this all in Jesus' name.